Prem Shri Goh Shri Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhupada Shri Krishna Shri Vasadi Gaur Bhakta Vrindaki Jai Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gopina Shai Mukunda Radha Kundagiri Govardhana Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai Navadvipaya Purdhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Gangamaya Jamuna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai Sambhaveta Bhakta Vrindaki Jai Gaur Premananda All glories to the assembled devotees all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om, Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prasthaya, Bhutala, Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swami, Niti Namani, Namaste, Sarasvati Devi, Gauravani Pachani, Nivasesis, Nivani Paskachati, Satarani, Vandeham, Sri Guru, Sri Yuta, Parakamam, Sri Guru, Vaishnavamscha, Sri Rupam, Sagajatam, Sahagana, Raghunatam, Vitamstam, Sajiva. Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vitakamitascha Vanchakalpa Chubhishtha Kipasindviya Bhattapatitanam Pavanevya Vaishnavivinamunna Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's May 16, 2016 in Columbus, Ohio. Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 29, Text 17. Yata Yata Vikriyate Gunato Vikarotiva Tata Tato Padrastatma Tadvrittir Anukaryate. This is actually an amazing verse about the nature of reality. Tony, put that away. Yata yata. Just as. Vikriyate. Is agitated. Guna akta. Associated with the modes of nature. Vikaroti. As it does. Va. Or. Tata tata. Similarly. Upadrasta. Observer. Atma. The soul. Tat. Of the intelligence. Vrittihi. Occupations. Anukaryate. Imitates. So if you want to know what's going on in this material world, this verse, very simply, will tell you. But it's a little heavy, what's going on here. So this is a, a real illusion-smashing verse. Formerly it was explained that the queen is one's intelligence. While one is awake or asleep, that intelligence creates different situations. Being influenced by contaminated intelligence, the living entity envisions something and simply imitates the actions and reactions of his intelligence. Purport. The Queen of Parunjana is described herein as intelligence itself. Intelligence acts both in the dream state and in the waking state, but is contaminated by the three modes of material nature. Since the intelligence is contaminated, the living entity is also contaminated. In the conditioned state, the living entity acts according to his conditioned intelligence, although he simply remains an what? Upadrasta. What does drasta mean? To see. Upa? Higher. Upadrasta, the observer. 
Although he simply remains an observer, he nonetheless acts, being forced by a contaminated intelligence, which is in reality, which in reality is a passive agent. We have a very typical Sanskrit configuration here with yatayatan tatatata. Yatayata vikriyate gunato vikarotiva tatatata padradistatma. So upadristatma, the self is simply the upadrista. Tadvritir anukaryate. Formally, it was explained that the queen is one's intelligence while one is awake or asleep, that intelligence creates different situations. Being influenced by contaminated intelligence, the living entity envisions something and simply imitates the actions and reactions of his intelligence. So, Thomas is just amazing. You know, when people study the philosophy of what we're doing in this world, the philosophy of science, the philosophy of research, one of the questions that they ask is, what are we perceiving? Who's perceiving and who's doing? Who's perceiving and who's doing? What is the world about anyway? How are we interacting with the world? Now, this might be rather important if we're trying to think of uh, what are we really experiencing, right? Tarni and I were talking yesterday about what is predestined, right? And what is not predestined? To what extent am I the doer? To what extent am I creating my activities? To what extent am I even perceiving the world? Hmm? Do you think that might be sort of an important question when you decide what you want to do today? Am I doing it? What am I doing? So here it's saying something fascinating. It says that the intelligence, the subtle body, specifically the intelligence of the subtle body, is contaminated by the modes of material nature. It's a passive agent. Something like a computer is a passive agent. Yes? So your computer is passive. We have a computer there. It's just passive. And then it doesn't, it's not active. It's not active. We're at uh, 4.29.17. And at the same time, the intelligence gets contaminated by the modes of material nature. So the modes of material nature have been compared to colors. Correct? Yeah. Right? Like red, yellow, and blue. So we have, of course, it's a little different colors with light. What are the three colors with light? Cyan, magenta, and yellow. All right, so you have the cyan, magenta, and yellow are mixing on your computer screen, which is a passive agent. Oh, sorry. Uh, light is red, green, blue. Red, green, red, blue. blue. Okay, cyan, magenta, and yellow, that's for the subtracting Eight. colors. Yeah. Okay. So the red, green, red, yellow, and blue are mixing on your computer screen and creating an image, correct? Then you're observing the image and you're responding to the image, but you are just the observer. Does this make sense to everybody? So the intelligence is like that. It's like a passive screen. And on this screen, the modes of material nature are combining, and they're creating a story. And we, the soul, are simply the upadrasta. We are just watching this story. We are not really doing it. But we're thinking, as Prabhupada quoted in the previous verse, Prakriti Kriyamanani Gunai Kamrani Sarvasha, Ahankaravi Mudhatma Kartaham Itimanyate. We think we're doing something. We think we're writing the story and we think we're acting, but we're not. Now it's interesting that Prabhupada says here in this verse that the living entity also becomes contaminated. Of course, the living entity is never actually contaminated. Something like if I'm watching something on my computer, I'm not really involved in whatever it is I'm watching. 
But what I'm watching affects me emotionally and mentally, correct? And it can even affect me physiologically. I can watch something and I can cry and I can perspire, right? Correct? So it's affecting me, although in one sense I'm not really affected by it. If people are dying on my computer screen, I, I don't have to go to the hospital with, with bullet wounds in my arm. Although I may cry that somebody's been shot. Does this make sense to everybody? So in one sense I'm contaminated by it, and in another sense I'm not really. If someone's eating a big meal and I'm, I'm watching this on my screen, that doesn't affect my own digestion. I'm, I'm not going to get fat by watching people eat on the computer screen. But in another sense, I become affected by it. I identify with it. Emotionally, mentally, on a subtle level, I become affected by it. So one could say I'm both contaminated by it and I'm not contaminated by it. And our whole material life is like this. We've gotten this subtle body, and on the screen of our subtle body, is playing out a story in the three modes of material nature. The three modes of material are creating various stories, various combinations of the modes. And we're, as the observer, we're identifying with this, and we're thinking this is me, and we're thinking I'm doing these things. I'm involved in this story that's playing out on the screen of my intelligence, as it says here, whether waking or dreaming. I mean, we can all have some idea of this in a dream, in a dream, it appears that we're doing so many things that we're not actually doing. You know, in my, in my dream, I can, you know, travel to India. When I wake up there, I still am in Ohio. I haven't actually gone to India. But in my dream, I'm experiencing being in India, as if I were there. But our waking state, factually, is very much like that. That in my waking state, we're really imagining that we're doing all the things that we're doing. Asadaputabu explained this very nicely by the analogy of a computer game, which I haven't played, but I've seen people play, where they take um, various characters in the game. Have, have all of you seen this when people play computer games? So they take a character, and they have the character has a certain body and a certain name and a certain personality, and it does various things in the game, and the characters interact with each other in the game. So if, if several people are playing the game together, they have a shared experience, and they can talk about what they did in the game. Correct? Yes? So I've seen this. You know, they'll get together when they're not playing even, and they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, you got the gold, and you jumped off the mountain, and you killed the demon, and oh, yeah, why weren't you there to help me? And, and they're, <laughs> they're acting as, as if it's a reality. And people can become so absorbed in this that their real life fades into the background. We had a family visit us one time with a 15-year-old boy. And, you know, at 5 in the morning he was up and he was on the computer. And I don't even know if he used the toilet or whatever all day. I mean, he didn't eat until the evening. And we finally said, hey, you know, you got to come have something to eat. So he lost all awareness of the, of the world as he was absorbed. So this is what happens to us in this material world. We lose awareness of our identity. We lose awareness of of God, we lose awareness of the spiritual world, we lose awareness of everything around us. And we simply think, this is me, I am this, I am this uh, person in the story on my intelligence. So what determines what story is played out on our intelligence? Well, that's the desire of the soul. Just like a person may desire to see a particular kind of movie, one person wants to see a horror movie, one person wants to see a science documentary, one person wants, you know. 
So according to one's desire, one's will see a different story. And that story is a particular combination of the modes. Whatever combination of the modes is attracting the soul. Well, I will enjoy like this. Well, I will enjoy like this. Well, I will enjoy like this. Let me try this combination of the modes. And then, of course, once we're observing a particular story and a particular combination of the modes, that affects the next story that we want to see, the next story that we want to experience. We might say, oh, I, I, didn't, I don't like that very much. I, I, don't, I don't think I want to do it. I want to try something different. Or, no, I, I really want to keep doing this. And as we identify with whatever we're experiencing, it brings up desires in us that then creates the next story and the next story, whether that's you know, different chapters in the book of this life or whether it's the book for the next life. And when you're talking about destiny, so some of you may be familiar with these books called Choose Your Own Adventure. I don't know if they're... Sorry, I don't know if the rest of you are familiar with that. It's a rather new thing out in the world. They didn't have them when I was growing up. They did have them a long time ago. They did, okay. Well, I don't remember them as a kid at all. So in these books, they're, they're very unusual. They're written in the second person. Pretty much all books are written in first or third person. These, you all know what second person is. You, first person is I, second person is you, third person is he, she, we, they. Not we, we is first person. So in the second person, you have a story, and then you get to a choice point. Okay, are you, what are you going to do? Are you going to run in the pyramid, or are you going to stay out? And then depending on what you choose, you switch to another page in the book. So you have choices, but it's limited. You don't have an unlimited number of choices. The choices are predetermined by the author of the book. So similarly, we have, even in this life, we have different choice points, but they're not unlimited. You know, I, I couldn't say in this life, well, I want to be an Olympic athlete. I just don't have the body for it. Or I couldn't say, you know, in this life, I'm going to be an Albert Einstein or something like that. You know, I don't have the mind for it. So there's certain things that we can't choose in this life. Or in this life, I'm going to fly, you know. Sorry, the wrong, you're in the wrong book. You don't have, it's not on your, on your choice menu. So each of us have a certain amount of choices that's constrained to us by our previous activities. And then we go on, because of these choices, we determine this life, and then other choices we determine in the next life. But we remain the Upadrista. We remain the Upadrista. We're not all the things we're doing. Tata tato pad Upadrista. Tadvriti anukaryate. So anukaryate is here Prabhupada's translating as imitating. Vritti anukaryate. We're imitating occupations. We're not really doing them. And it's interesting that we get so caught up in these uh, fantasy stories that we're doing in this world. They become very important to us. We're investing all of our, our energy. We have a lot of energy as a soul, and we're investing that energy into these make-believe stories. So the advice of the Shastra is, purify your intelligence. Purify the mind, purify the intelligence. Manmana bhava madbhakto majjati Think instead of Krishna. When we start playing Krishna on the screen of our intelligence, then gradually and proportionally the three modes of material nature go away. There's not room for both. Hmm? I mean, it can be proportional. You can have, just like if you look behind you, so the sun's coming in there, and you can see there's some sunlight and there's some darkness. So it can be proportional. The room can be partially lit. 
you can have a dimmer switch that gradually turns on the light. So generally for us in our spiritual life, our light turns on very gradually. I believe the reason for this is that for most of us, if we have to give up the false ego immediately, it's too much for us. It's too big of a shock. We're too attached to the false ego. You know, it's like... Kind of like if you're sleeping and then just turns on the light. Yes. And you wake up too suddenly. Right. One of my former students got a phone call while she was sleeping, jumped out of bed and fell over and broke her nose. You know, so it's, it's, it can be very shocking. Right? Um, yes. Also, it it's, can be dysfunctional. So there's people who have a defect of their false ego. They think one of their limbs doesn't belong to them. Mm. And they want to cut it off. Like They, they, they totally... Oh, yes, yes. That. So, I mean, that's, that's clearly not functional. So false ego... I mean, it is the ego that we have. It, it's needed for some things. Yes. So to just, even if it's even if it's not functioning properly, simply to cut it off immediately is very, it's too shocking for most of us. It's just too much. It's like when people are addicted to some drug. Do you usually just get, get them cold turkey off of it? Usually you titrate down, right? Isn't that a fact in medicine? Yeah. You either titrate it down or you... Substitute something. You kind of come to the point where you go cold turkey, but it still requires coming to a point. So you have to... Okay, so at a certain point you go cold turkey, but first you titrate down and then you go cold turkey. Yes? yes. Or you may put give them some substitute. What do they have? A methadone for heroin. They give them some sort of substitute uh, that so they can gradually get them off it. So it is possible to become Krishna conscious in a moment. It is possible. It's not that it's not possible. And some jivas do that. However, for most of us, we're not willing. We wouldn't be a willing, cooperative agent in that process. We're, we're so how would it look like that I'm Krishna conscious? How would I, what does it look like, total Krishna? What does total Krishna conscious? Well, I can just repeat from the Shastra. I don't know. I'm just a very fallen conditioned soul. But what total Krishna consciousness would look like is that you're only identifying with your real identity. Now, you may also play something on the computer game, but you have no identification with it whatsoever. So there's, um, I've heard, I haven't seen it myself, but I've heard that there's a computer game called Second Life, where people build uh, houses and have jobs, and they exchange money, and all in this fantasy world. And... There are devotees who have made virtual temples in second life. And they have kirtans, and they have bhagavatam classes, and they have deity worship, all virtually. And they're getting people to take up Krishna consciousness. For a realized soul, preaching in this world is something like that. So for someone who's fully Krishna conscious... They're absorbed in their eternal identity. They're not identifying with this world. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. Like the lotus leaf is not touched by the water. But they appear to be functioning in the world. But they never identify with the world. Of course, it was interesting, Lord Chaitanya had said he had external consciousness, internal consciousness, and mixed consciousness. So sometimes when he was fully in internal consciousness, he didn't relate with the world at all. Something like the Dhyan Yoga Samadhi, 
where one is at prachit hara, all of the senses are cut off from their objects, which we have a little like perversion of that in deep sleep. So in deep sleep, we're not aware of the external world at all. Now in yogic samadhi, you're not aware of the external world, but you're fully awake within. But in that state, a person is not interacting with the world at all. They're only interacting with the real world, not the illusory world. And we have this happen with yogis, right? What, what persons in our shastras went into such states of consciousness? It was Shaimananda Pandit, did? Yeah, I think for eating kheer or something like he that. Was, he was, right, he was uh, boiling milk. Oh. Any other examples? Rupa Goswami, Radharani's kheer. And, uh, yeah, okay. Yes. Well, Raghunath Das Goswami, when he was, um, wasn't there a tiger or was that someone else? That was the tiger with Raghunath Das Goswami. Yeah, and he didn't notice. He didn't notice the tiger was there, and then Krishna protected him from the tiger. He didn't even know it was there, and Sanatana Goswami comes and says, hey, there's a tiger. And then another time, Radharani shielded him from, from the, the sun, sun, and Sanatana Goswami said, you have to build a hut, you can't. Yes, he said, it's bad enough you're taking service from Krishna, but you can't be taking service from Radha, you have to build a hut. Yeah, but he had no awareness of it. Some other examples. What about Shamakarishi when Maharaj Brickett came? And Shamakrishi was not aware that Maharaj Parikit came and asked for water. He had no awareness of it. Lord Shiva in the Daksha Yagya, who wasn't aware that uh, his father-in-law was there. He was in a state of samadhi. Um, King Indrajumna, who was cursed to become Gajendra, the elephant. I forget what the sage was. Okay. So he was in a state of, of samadhi, and he had no awareness of the outside world. So sometimes the great souls they go into this state of internal consciousness, which Chaitanya Mahaprabhu did particularly at the end of his manifest pastimes. And they enter into a state of samadhi where they have no awareness of, the, of this world at all. They're simply in their eternal position. And then sometimes those great souls are primarily aware of this world. They're in external consciousness. But even when they're external consciousness, they never forget their real identity. They never identify with this world, even when they're in external consciousness. And then there's mixed, where they're, more, they're, they're much more aware of their internal and much less aware of their external, but still functioning in the world. I mean, we all have some sort of experience of this. We all have an experience that if we're thinking about something that's really engaging us emotionally, we may be more or less present where we are externally. Like all of you are sitting here, but some of you might not actually be here. You know, sometimes after the class, you know, what was the class about? Well, I don't know. Well, you were sitting there, but you were not sitting there. So, you know, if, if you're going to travel to Alaska tomorrow, maybe you're just thinking about that. You know, if you have a meeting with your boss and you think he's going to be angry with you, and you have a meeting at 9 o'clock with your boss and you're worried about it, you may just be thinking about that. You know, if you're going to get married tomorrow, you may just be thinking about that. So anything that really engages us, either positively or negatively, emotionally, removes our consciousness from our surroundings. Isn't that a fact? So when we are very engaged mentally and emotionally in Krishna, then we no longer identify with the world. We can still work in the world, 
but we don't work in the world because we're identifying with the world. So, so can you understand what these emotions are like? Where do they arrive from? Is it from the soul or is it from the external body and intelligence kind of when we are observing those thoughts? Well, the, the soul has emotions because Rupa Goswami is describing bhakti as emotion. As, as rasa, he's describing, it's all, it's all emotion. So you have your five primary rasas, which are neutrality, servant, friendship, parental, and, and amorous. Now those are all feelings. They're feelings, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you see a, a really cute little child playing and, you know, the father's holding him and the father and child are smiling at each other, that evokes an emotion in you, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It evokes a, a caring protective kind of emotion, a, a, a parental, yes? yes? We all experience this? I like to give the example, I was at a, a, a gate in an airport, and there was a little girl there dressed up in some sort of costume, maybe three-year-old child, and she was so charming, and the mother and father were there, and their relationship with this girl was extremely affectionate and, and loving, and everyone in the gate was just smiling at this Interchange. So that is how one feels in one's relationship with Krishna. So that's an, an, a feeling. That's called the staibhav. The staibhav is your essential feeling. How do you describe the feeling of friendship? How do you describe it? You know, but it's a certain feeling, or the feeling of parental. You could say, well, it's full of compassion, it's full of care, it's full of protection. You know, we say things like, ah, but how do you, you know, it, it's a certain feeling, it's an emotion. And then the other parts of rasa are the uh, vibhav, what stimulates that. So the little girl in her fairy costume, whatever it was, and then, the, so the girl herself, the cute little girl herself, and then the way her parents were relating with her. So that's the vishaya and the ashraya that stimulates that feeling. You know, just walking in an airport, I'm not feeling parental. But when I see this cute little child and I see how lovingly her mother and father are relating with her, that stimulates parental feelings. And then there are the vavichari bhavs. Those are different waves of feelings. So if the child started to fall off the stairs, then you would feel afraid. Fear would mix with your parental feelings. Does this all make sense? So there's all of these ways of emotion. And then there's the anubhav. Anubhav is how I act. So I might smile at the child. I might say, oh, hello. What's your name? I do some action in that parental mood. And then there's the sattvic abhavs. Sattvic abhavs are the involuntary actions that you do. You might cry. You might perspire. Your hands, your hairs may stand on end. You may tremble. You may faint. So, and you're not voluntarily doing this. So all of this has to do with emotions. And all the uh, vavichari bhavs, the different ways of emotion, Rupa Goswami's listing, all these different kinds of emotion. So those are part of the soul. If they weren't part of the soul, we couldn't talk about love of God being inherent to the soul. Love of God is, is, is it's action. It's both an emotional action and an external action. They say the anubhavs are external action, but they're not external action devoid of emotion. They're not robotic actions. It's not that the cowherd boys are throwing balls with Krishna or they're throwing fruit-like balls just robotically. Okay, Krishna, catch this ball. 
all right, I caught it. It's not like that, right? They're, they're full of emotion. So our material emotions, everything. I mean, spiritually, we have a spiritual body, which has actions. We have a spiritual mind, which is thinking, feeling, and willing. Thoughts, emotions, and desires, which then translate into actions. We have a spiritual intelligence. So all of those things exist spiritually. Now, the material emotions are just combinations of the modes of material nature. They don't belong to the soul at all, any more than the material thoughts belong to the soul or the material actions belong to the soul. Again, here we have this analogy, right? It says, they simply remains an observer, right? The intelligence is just this contaminated screen, or often the intelligence is compared in the Shastra to a mirror, that it's mirroring the modes of material nature. So again, if we go to the analogy of, of a screen, so there's a story being played out on the screen. And in the story, people are doing things, they are thinking things, and they are feeling things. When we are watching what's on the screen, we identify with them. And their thoughts and feelings become ours. And even their actions become ours to some extent. As I say, we will have physiological responses to what we are watching, correct? I mean, if the guy's running on the screen, we don't get out of our seat in the theater and start running. But we will have physiological changes. In fact, you know, uh, athletes often prepare mentally. You know, you're aware of this? That athletes will have, they'll mentally prepare how I'm going to hit the, the ball. And, and they, they, when they study the brain activity, they find that the brain activity, when you're mentally doing something, is almost, I think it's like two-thirds of the same activity that happens when you're physically doing it. We all mentally prepare for stuff, don't we? You know, I'm going to have a big meeting today. We kind of get a little picture of what we're going to do, and we get a sense of what we're going to do. So even in the sense of acting, when we are watching the, the film, or reading a book, or, we, we have some activity going on in our brain, and even in our muscles, and our blood, and our nerves, as if we were doing what the people we are watching or reading about are doing. So in our conditioned state, we've lost touch with who we are almost completely. You know, if you're playing a computer game or you're watching a movie, you still remain some sense, retain some sense of your identity outside. There's, there's some awareness of who I am outside of this illusion. But Krishna's illusion, Daiviyesha Gunamai, it's, it's such a divine illusion that we retain practically no awareness that we have an existence outside of the illusion. I mean, every once in a while in, in human life, there's a little kind of, is this all there is? Thought. You know, there, there's something wrong here. Something, something's not right about this experience. So even your ordinary, plain old ordinary, conditioned Kali Yuga, mode of ignorance, passion person, just kind of trudging along through life. Every once in a while, there's going to be like this little glimmer. And they're going to say, is this, is this it? Is this, is this as good as it gets? Doesn't it get any better than this? You know, why do I have to die? Why is there suffering? What, what's going on here? Anyway, something funny about this. I'm doing all the things that, I'm, that are supposed to make me happy. You know, I have a, a sexual partner, and I have food to eat, and I have money in the bank, and I have a house, and I have a car, and I have a flat-screen TV, and I have a dog, and I have all that. And somehow I'm not, I'm not satisfied. What? What's wrong? Oh, and then it goes away, and they think, oh, I don't have the latest 
flat screen TV. That's the problem. You know, I, or I have the wrong sexual partner. I, there was a, a church that they, uh, they normally got like about 20, 30 people coming to their services. And you know how churches put out signs of what they're going to have on Sunday. So they put out, what do you do if you think you married the wrong person? 2,000 people came to the, to the service. So, you know, that, the conditioned soul, when they get this little glimmer, they just think, well, I just have to adjust my sense gratification. You know, I just, I just have to buy a different pair of shoes and have a different computer and a, and a new partner and a new dog, and, you know, another dog, and then I'll be happy. And so then it kind of goes away, you understand? And then again, sometime will come. Something's funny here. But when we come to Krishna consciousness, first what we do, and this is really interesting, I talked about this on Saturday night, we use the illusion first to think of Krishna. We use the material emotions, we use the material mind, we use the material body, because that's all we're identifying with. It's all, all we know. The only thing we know of our real identity in the beginning of Krishna consciousness is that we're told by the Shastra that that's our real identity. And these little tiny glimmers of light that every human being has had, that's all we, that's all we know. How are you going to act according to your real identity in the beginning? You'd have no idea what it is. You're so covered over. So at first we just take our false identity and try to Krishnaize it. And this is one of the beauties of bhakti yoga. In the other kinds of yoga, you're not doing this. Well, karma yoga, you are. But in jnana yoga and jnana yoga, you're not doing that. In jnana yoga and jnana yoga, you're simply trying to stop it. You're simply trying to, you're basically trying to get a blank screen. So it's much easier in bhakti yoga, and to some extent also in karma yoga, we say, okay, you think you're somebody's wife? Be a Krishna conscious wife. You think that you're an IT professional? Be a Krishna conscious IT professional. You think you're, you know, like someone was talking to me yesterday and saying, you know, well, I'm, I'm a doctor and I'm working to advance my career as a doctor. And if I stop trying to advance my career as a doctor, if I think, well, I'm just going to do this for Krishna, she said, then I don't even want to do it at all anymore. She said, I lose my motivation. And I said to her, you're, you're jumping too high too fast. I said, advance your career, but think of how advancing your career would be useful in the preaching. How would that be useful? Oh, yeah, that would be very useful. If I was more known in my profession, then I'd have more of a platform for preaching Krishna consciousness. I said, can you do that? She says, yes. So that's our idea of bhakti. Okay, you know, if you're, you want to wear pretty clothes, then wear pretty gopi skirts. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you take those material emotions. You're asking specifically about emotions. So you take your material emotions. They're material. They're just combinations of the modes of nature. And they're not really my emotions at all. I take that and I offer it to Krishna, just like I offer the food to Krishna and I offer my speaking to Krishna. That's all material. Offer your emotions to Krishna. How do you offer your emotions to Krishna? Well, you can be angry for Krishna, be angry at the cow slaughterers and go out and distribute books. You understand? You can have that as your impetus for distributing books, that you're angry at all the abortionists and the cow slaughterers and the polluters, etc. You can even just say, I mean, if, if you're so overwhelmed by material emotions, let's say you're, you know, really, really upset at something that happened in your family or at your work, you can at least 
at least you can look at the deity or you can look at a picture of Krishna on your phone or whatever on your wall and you can say, Krishna, I wish I had this intensity of emotion for you. Which, by the way, instantly changes everything as soon as you say that. You can be totally, you know, wrapped, totally overwhelmed by the material emotions. And if you just go, Krishna, I'm supposed to be feeling this for you. Because all of the material emotions have their spiritual counterparts. If you look at the seven secondary rasas and all the anubhavs, everything you could possibly feel in this world has its spiritual counterpart. Even grief and anxiety and anger and confusion have some counterpart in love. And you could say, Krishna, I wish I had this much anxiety for you. And then instantly you think, oh yeah, that's the real purpose of emotion. And you get immediately, you become detached from the material circumstance. I mean, it happens that fast. You know, you're, you're furious with, you know, some incompetent person in your life. <laughs> Incompetence is one of the main things that makes us angry. And you say, Krishna, I wish I felt this much anger in relation to you. I wish I was this angry at Kaliya. You know, we're singing Kaliya Damana. What if we're not sure whether it's in relation to well, then that means we're partially in light and partially in darkness. Because as we're replacing, as we're spiritualizing our mind and intelligence and physical activities, then they're mixed, Prabhupada says, gradually and proportionally. And this is very nicely explained in Madhuri Kanambani by Vishnu Chakravati Thakur. So he has, which, which we've made into a little chart. So he has at the stages of bhakti, adushrata, sadhusanga, bhajana, kriya, nartanavritti, etc. How much of our consciousness is self-centered? and how much of our consciousness is Krishna-centered. And one time talking about this, I fried out a devotee so much he didn't come to my classes again for like a month. And I'm like, what can I do? It's Vishnu Chakravati Thakur. So he says, at the beginning of our Krishna consciousness, our self-centeredness is absolute. And our Krishna-centeredness is just a trace. So she was very offended by me. But that's just what it is. And there isn't much progress made in that until you get up to an Artanavritti. Now, at Nista, it's about half and half. So, at about when you come to Nista, which is, means you're fixed in the mode of goodness, that means that you have about half your consciousness is self centered and about half your consciousness is Krishna centered. But at the point of Nista, you're basically not led around by lust, anger, envy, greed, and illusion anymore, even though you're only half but it's still only half. So as we progress in Krishna consciousness, we should have more and more that our emotions start being our real emotions and our thoughts start being our real thoughts. And at a certain point, we start waking up as to who am I? Now, when exactly does that happen? I don't know. That depends on each person. You can think of it like if you ever have a pot that got really dirty. You have a pot that you really, 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 I mean... I, I was once boiling milk, and a friend of mine came with an emergency, knocked on my door. She had an emergency. Actually, I just saw her recently in Florida. And I told her this. She said, I didn't know you had milk on the stove. <laughs> I forgot, you know. I ran out of the, the apartment, and I went to take care of her emergency and came back quite a long time later. So there was milk all over the stove and smoke all over the apartment, and the pot was really burnt. And if I had any brains, I would have thrown the pot away and bought a new one. But I really liked the pot. And so I, I was scrubbing it. Actually, twice that pot was burnt. Another time it was burnt by another devotee with whom we shared an apartment. Uh, so every day I would scrub it a little. You know, that's kind of our sadhana. 
just like uh, Vishnu Chagavati Thakur in his commentary to uh, Bhakti Yosamrita Sindhu, he says, always think of Krishna means at least the beginner daily. If you can't 24 hours a day, think, at least you have a certain time in the day you're thinking of Krishna. So I couldn't scrub the pot all day, but at least every day for like, you know, 15, 20 minutes I was there scrubbing the pot. And a certain point, a little bit of the silver color showed through. So at a certain point, and this is with Krishna talking about rubbing the wood also, and sparks appear. So at a certain point, enough of the bottom of the pot shows through that you have some idea what kind of pot it is. Maybe, you know, you're rubbing at the place where you can see the name, Revereware or Faberware, or whatever the name of the pot manufacturer is. So at some point, enough of the illusion is gone that you have some glimpse of your real identity. And, the, and spiritual emotions awaken. So some little spiritual emotions can awaken even for the beginner. It can awaken in what's called a bhav abhas. So if you're in the company of a, of a greatly advanced soul, you can be in, the, in their shadow and a little spirit of their spiritual emotion kind of bounces into you and you experience some genuine spiritual emotion. Now, people who get kind of addicted to that and they follow sadhus all over the world and they try to get in their shadow, you know, so they can have this bhava boss. But we want our own emotions to awaken. The idea of being around a sadhu and we're picking up on their emotions is to inspire us to do our own cleaning. But even some spiritual emotions can awaken, as I say, just in the beginner. Somebody first day contacting Krishna consciousness can hear a kirtan and have an authentic spiritual experience. And the way I explain that is an experience that can't be explained by the material elements. Like Lord Chaitanya talks about prasadam. He said, we all know what's in this preparation. It's sugar and black pepper and camphor. He said, but the taste cannot be explained by any of the material ingredients. So whenever we experience something in a kirtan that can't be explained by the musical expertise or something, we look at a painting or the deity that can't be explained by the expertise of the artist, or we read something in the books that can't be explained just by the expertness of the language, or something in prasadam that can't be explained by the ingredients. So that's, that feeling we get then is, is a little bit of our genuine spiritual emotion. How do we get there? By using our material emotions and material mind and material body for Krishna. That's like rubbing the pot. And yes, at first it's material, but it's spiritualized material. Like Prabhupada says, the hot iron rod put in the fire. As soon as you take it out of the fire, it's useless. And, and Lord Kapiladev says, you use the mind as a hook to capture the Lord, and then eventually the Lord just appears. And you have a genuine spiritual experience. So as you keep using the mind and intelligence and body in Krishna service, that actually dissolves it. Like we give the example of wood. You use wood to start a fire, the fire burns the wood. So we use this contaminated consciousness and put Krishna on it. So then our, our thinking of Krishna is going to be contaminated. Well, yeah, but that's all we have. I don't have anything else. What else am I going to do? I can't access my real identity in the beginning. And as I more and more start, as my identity starts to awaken, eventually you see enough of yourself, you're like, oh, oh I want Krishna to be my master, or, or I want Krishna to be my friend, or I want Krishna to be my lover. That starts to 
wake up. And, and, it's, and when it does, it's actually kind of shocking to a person. Like, really? Really? It's so radically different from one's material experience. And then it becomes mixed, that one has, again, the mix of the spiritual emotions, takes over more and more. Instead of it being a little fleck of silver in the bottom of the pot, it starts being more and more of the part. Instead of just being a little spark, it starts being a little flame. You understand? So there's these little sparks, these little sparks. And then if you pour ghee on them, if you nourish them, as Krishna says in the 11th canto, it becomes a flame. You're starting a fire. Pretty soon there's a little flame over here. So there's mostly smoke, but there's a little flame. And if you say, well, I'm not going to feed the flame because there's still smoke. I'm going to wait until there's a blazing fire and then I'm going to feed it. Then you're never going to get a blazing fire. If you say, I can't think about Krishna, I can't give my emotions to Krishna in my present state because my emotions and my thoughts are contaminated, then you're never going to come to pure emotions and pure thoughts. Where, how will you get there? You know, then a person is, is, is Gyan, Karma, and Avratam. They're covering Bhakti with Jnana and Karma. They're thinking, I'm going to first make my screen blank and then I'll put Krishna on it. But that's not a bhakti. That's a jnana and, and, and jnana process. And they're usually trying to do it through heavy detachment and, and negativity, which Krishna says, Klesho jikatrastesham avyaktasaktatetrasam avyaktahigatirajukamtehavadvirvapite. He says that can work, but it's very troublesome. It takes a long time. Better to take the material... And Krishnaize it. It's mundane, but Krishnaize it. As you Krishnaize it, it gradually, gradually burns itself off. The Krishnaizing process destroys the material, and as it destroys the material, the spiritual becomes evident. And yes, it's mixed. It's going to be mixed until prema. It's going to be mixed even to some extent at bhava. You know, even some of the gopis who enjoyed Krishna's leelas in the material world still had a little bit of dross left in the bottom of their cup. Yes? They still had a little bit of smoke there. It was a little bit. Some of those gopis, right? They couldn't go to see Krishna in the first Rasnets because it yeah, was something. Yeah, they left their bodies at that point. Well, it said they, le- they left their bodies the way that Brahma gives up his body. Oh. Because the Acharyas say if some gopis had died on the night of the first Raslila, that would have been very auspicious. It wouldn't have been pleasing for Krishna. Oh. So they didn't literally die but they gave up all their subtle contamination. So the whole process of bhakti yoga means that we, ha- we are working with a mixed consciousness. That's what bhakti yoga means. If you don't want to work with a mixed consciousness, then you have to take up one of the other yogas because they first clear the slate and then you can add Krishna. But that's a lot harder because then you're staring at a gradually more and more blank screen. Almost impossible. Not impossible, but almost impossible. But anyway, it's not even an advised process at all because you're gradually making your screen blank. Is that attractive? No. And it's, it's very difficult and it's unnatural. Whereas what we're doing, you know, we have this totally materialistic thing playing on our screen, and then we kind of put Krishna into the picture. Yes? I don't know, I have a question. Yes. It's not directly... We're going past 8.30, though. Are we in trouble? No, that's right. Trouble for what? I mean, I, I'm not so sure, sure. I just want to make sure people have things to do and places to go. They can go. 
Oh, okay. Uh, I don't want to go too much longer, but yes, what's your question? Bhakti yoga, yes. you're an educator. Yes. And it applies to children. That's my upadi. It's one of my upadis, yes. I'm a children's educator, but yes. You know, I took up Krishna consciousness when I was, when I had already finished my education. Okay. I had some idea of life. Yes. I went to college and everything. Yes. If a child takes up Krishna consciousness, to a certain degree, you know, his material prospect you know, he is not fully aware of what's happening. Okay. You know, I took up Krishna consciousness on a certain level. Then I always had a choice of yes. deciding where I want to put a full stop. Okay. Know, what I want to do with my life. Right. And how much Krishna I want. Okay. And there was a choice. But in a child's life, you know, um, it's not there. You know, they're, they're doing something which... You know, you're, you're, it sounds to me like you're making the assumption that full Krishna consciousness somehow doesn't give you the ability to make material choices of how you want to live your life. It limits. In Why? The, it does. Prabhupada says Krishna consciousness is not narrow or stereotyped. The only things you couldn't do in Krishna consciousness, what are they? Well, you couldn't be a mafia boss. You couldn't run a strip joint or a barbecue restaurant, or, you know, a gambling casino, or a liquor store. You couldn't do that as a Krishna conscious person. You couldn't run a slaughterhouse, a beef cattle ranch. And there's certain things you couldn't do, but you could let do me, everything else. Let me, let me ask you, that's, not the, that, that's very easy to understand. Let's say a, a family you know, yeah. becomes Krishna conscious, okay. and they have a, a high middle school child, Okay. Now, their weekends are spent in the temples and on home programs. Now, the child also, let's say he gets a little flavor for Krishna consciousness. Okay. Now, he spends his time doing kirtan. Okay. Now, that time, as a growing up child, yeah. he could have been doing learning languages, going visiting places, developing skills. How many languages does Janu know now? Okay, so her older brother knows four or five languages. Okay, he may. But uh, and that wasn't. And in fact, he learned those languages because of his Krishna consciousness. So we took him traveling around the world, and he met people who spoke Russian. You know, he went on the Polish tour. Everybody was speaking Russian, so he wanted to learn Russian. A lot of kids. I'll be very honest with you. A lot of kids who grow up in Krishna consciousness, they they have this resentment. Okay, you're taught, you're going way back in history. So in the early days of the Hare Krishna movement, the members of the movement were all young converts, most of whom were coming from hippies, although the hippies did not call themselves hippies, they called themselves freaks. So they had already dropped out of society. They had dropped out of school, they had dropped out of jobs, they were not, they had rejected basically Rajagun. Unfortunately, they substituted Tamagun for Rajagun. 
but they had dropped out of society. They had, they, these were people who had said, we don't want a big house in the suburbs with two cars and a dog and a big TV. We want to find something higher. And they were trying to find something higher through drugs and, and sex, but still they were looking for something higher. When Srila Prabhupada came and these people became devotees, they took these material conceptions and mixed them with Krishna consciousness. So when they heard Prabhupada saying, don't try for material life, try for Krishna consciousness, they understood that to mean, don't bother to be competent at anything material, just chant Hare Krishna. Srila Prabhupada was coming from India. Right? And he was coming from a very high-class Indian background. So you please tell me, in India... Do they over or underemphasize material education? Order. Way overemphasize. And if you really want to get a laugh, go to YouTube and type in Indian parents and find the video. It shows a husband and wife in their bathrobes in the kitchen. And watch that. It's a comedy sketch. It's about five minutes long. But it's real. It's actually the way that people in India, not only India, China, and there's other um, groups of people that tend to be like this, that they so much emphasize the material side. I mean, I've even had, you know, Indian body devotees in the West tell me it's harder to be Krishna conscious in India because there's so much pressure for status and money from our families, more than in America. So that's where Srila Prabhupada was coming from, okay? He was coming from that, that place. And he comes to America that's very materially together. So he naturally assumes that the people are also like that. And he's saying, stop emphasizing the material, start emphasizing the spiritual. I know at the at Gopal's Garden School in Chalpati, Radhanaswamy is constantly having to tell the parents, ease up on, their, on your push for material education for your children. You know, it's so severe that the children in a lot of the Asian countries, not just India, but Korea and Japan, they're committing suicide because they can't, you know, they get an A- minus on their report card and their parents are ready to kill them. So Srila Prabhupada was, was emphasizing the spiritual. Now the problem was he was emphasizing the spiritual to people who had already rejected the material completely. So they said, great! Wow! Now we have permission to just totally neglect the material. And that's what they did. And keep in mind that Shila, when Srila Prabhupada was himself running the movement in the very early days, he encouraged devotees to get married. Prabhupada performed a lot of marriages. He encouraged them to marry young. He encouraged them to have jobs and businesses. That's what Prabhupada encouraged. But very, very early, he turned the movement over to the, the management of his disciples. He formed the GBC in 1970. These were people in their 20s with no leadership management experience, very little spiritual experience. People were becoming devotees, you know, becoming town presidents after six months in the movement. They didn't even know Bhagavad Gita. I mean, they didn't even know theoretically what to speak of being mature in Krishna consciousness. And they thought, okay, in our schools, to give the children Krishna consciousness means we're not going to teach them anything else. They thought, well, we don't have to teach them anything else because it's not important. Although we had Isha Upanishad that says you have to learn both side by side. We had Isha Upanishad. But Prabhupada in his purport to that says, don't just do the material, do the spiritual. Prabhupada doesn't talk so much about balance. He talks more about the spiritual. Why? You look at his background, where he's coming from. And again, so we took it and, oh, let's throw, we don't have to do side by side, throw away the material. 
And Prabhupada says in the second canto, Gurukul means you train the children with specific training for a livelihood. Did we do that? No, I don't know what we did with that purport. We looked at it and said, oh, that applies to another age or something. I, I don't know. And when Prabhupada would get angry that the children weren't learning properly how to read or how to do math, somehow it didn't translate. Then because we thought we don't have to give the kids a proper material education, we didn't employ properly trained teachers. Why do you have to properly train teachers if you're not going to give the kids a proper material education anyway? And then they thought, and we don't even really have to give them a spiritual education because they're all, you know, great souls. They're all demigods and sages and devotees from the previous life. So why do we even have to really give them a strong Krishna consciousness? That's just going to be natural for them. Prahlad was Krishna conscious even without any spiritual education. So why even give them good fixed-up devotees to be teachers? Even though Prabhupada was saying that. You have to give them good fixed-up devotees to be teachers. Then on top of all of that, the schools are being run by temples. The temple's emphasis was right now get out and preach, get out the books, take care of the deities, cook the prasadam. Most of the temples were not centers of education and training. They were much more centers of work. So if you're trying to get something done, an edu- a school is a long-term investment. A school doesn't bring back some immediate investment for you know dressing the deities today and getting out on Sankirtan. So who are you going to put in the school? You're going to put very little money, very little resources. Why bother? The kids don't need a good education anyway, and they don't need Krishna conscious anyway. Why bother? Just stick Bhakti Joe in there. And then in the name of detachment, we had the kids never even seeing their parents, and the parents not involved in the school, so the parents didn't come and see what was going on. And they just trusted the authorities to take care of the kids. And so we had a, a, a whole, you know, like about probably eight to ten years where our education system was, was really, really a mess. And the kids who came out of that education system, they struggled across the board. And then there was a lot of abuse going on because the kids were isolated from their parents, because the leadership wasn't giving priority to the school, wasn't giving money, wasn't giving good manpower, the teachers were not properly trained, then they had 15, 20 kids 24-7 to take care of. You know, just imagine having 25-year-old kids 24-7. You know, you might lose it. And so those kids ended up really struggling. I mean, there were some of them, actually many of them became devotees, but they struggled. They, they weren't prepared materially to function in the world. They weren't prepared with specific training for a livelihood or even basic educational skills. They weren't even properly prepared as devotees. The people who were taking care of them weren't very nice. How would you advise? But that's long, long over. Today, today that is so far over. That is done. That was done by the mid-80s. That's over. That doesn't happen anymore. What would you say to somebody who has a kid who's in ninth grade and they want to chant Hare Krishna, they want to chant rounds? That's like... Chant Hare Krishna. Chant Hare Krishna. You can't... How, how much chant Hare Krishna? However much they want to chant Hare Krishna. In our Hare Krishna schools now, I mean, we have our international school in Mayapur is using the Cambridge curriculum. 
I mean, our schools now are using, with one exception, our schools now are using standardized curriculum. Like the kids are going from our schools and homeschools into university and becoming doctors and lawyers and engineers and IT professionals and anything you could think of. We don't, we, we don't have a problem anymore with that. that that's, that's long gone. That was an initial fanatic insanity. I think, if anything, we've gone too far the other way now. You know, our pendulum's kind of swung the other way, and most of our schools have minimal Krishna conscious content. But I don't, I don't see a problem. Why can't you do both? Aren't we doing both? Krishna said to Arjuna, Mama Anusmaram Yujacha. Krishna didn't say to Arjuna, give up the battle, walk away from the battlefield, and just sit and meditate. I mean, you have Radhika Raman, who was, he was homeschooled between the ages of 7 and 12. And his mother took what most people would see as a very extreme stance that she just taught from the Bhagavatam. Her only textbooks were a mathematics book and Bhagavatam. And this kid got into college when he was 12. From a full morning program, only studying a mathematics textbook and the Srimad Bhagavatam. And he got into college when he was 12. He got his PhD from Oxford at the age of 22. And he is now a college professor here in America. I think at this point he's tenured. So I don't see that there's a contradiction at all. Why would, why would chanting rounds mean, I mean, okay, how much time are most kids spending just like playing computer games and watching television? What's the average television viewing time in America? Do you know that it's six hours a day? That's average? For a child. Everybody. For an American. Six hours a day. So that's average. So think of how many people are watching ten hours a day. I don't know how they do that. How do you find ten hours a day to watch television? How many people? They're doing something else at the same time. How much time are most people spending, you know, especially kids, on social media? What what, what are you sacrificing? Watching cat videos? I mean, what, what is it they're giving up? to chant Hare Krishna. They're not giving up studying nuclear physics. They're giving up listening to, um, what's his name, Justin Bieber, or Madonna, or that's what they'd be sacrificing. So Saturday and Sunday, there's a weekend. Saturday there's a program, Sunday there's a program. Because at school, he could have been in an art museum, a science gallery, so many things. Why can't he do both? Well, there's no time. The time. I'm just giving you an example. I don't know why I can't do both. I don't know. I was raised by a very religious family in New York, and we did both all the time. I went to all the art. Believe me, Prabhu. I went to all the art galleries in New York over and over and over and over. You know, I felt like I lived in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the New York Library and the Opera and the theater. You know, I went to Broadway theater and I went to opera and I went to everything you can possibly do in New York. And I still went to Hebrew school three times a week. And I went to synagogue every Friday and every Saturday, and we did religious things at home every day. But, but the question is, is that the kid feeling, the, feeling this one, or is the parents feeling that one? That they do, does not have time. It depends on that, too. I don't know this I mean, I don't, I don't think that you don't need, you don't need to spend every single waking hour in academic study. 
all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. I mean, Krishna says, be moderate in everything. You, you, don't, you really don't need, in order to be a success in the world, you don't need to do that. In fact, most colleges are looking for balanced people. Yeah. You know, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, they're rejecting pretty much everyone who has a 1600 SAT score and a 4.0 average and taken all the AP classes who hasn't done anything else with their life. Yeah, but people consider this, I mean, there is a bit of racism. They don't, they don't want too many Asians. Well, that's also true. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm just thinking also, you know, um, Tarni's older brother, Janu, he just got a $20,000 scholarship because he volunteered on the Polish tour. So they looked at his GPA, and they said, what volunteer activities are you And they gave him a $20,000 scholarship contingent on him keeping his GPA and continuing to engage in volunteer activities. So even from a material perspective, you want to be a well-rounded person. And if you don't have spiritual life, you ain't well-rounded because that's also who you are. You're not just the body and the mind, you're also a soul. If you're not spending any time, even if you want to compartmentalize your life, even if you don't want to Krishnaize your whole life, even if you want to say, you know, which is much more karma yoga than bhakti yoga, but even if you want to say, okay, I've got this time for study and this time for family and this time for work, you're not going to make any time for God? Then what will you have at the end of life? Nothing. My mother was in an old age home at the end of her life, and... You know, I'd go up to people there, they'd say, oh, this guy, he was a master chef. But he didn't even remember. I remember when I went up to this one lady, she was in a wheelchair. Every time I walked past, she would grab me. And sometimes I had to get out of my mother's room and just, I couldn't stay in my mother's room 13 hours a day. It was, sometimes I had to, like, walk and go in the common room. And every time she would grab me. And I said to her, um, do you have children? Oh, yeah, I have three... I don't remember. Are you married? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember. What is the point? What is the point? My mother at 15 was a beauty queen. She won a beauty pageant and won a worldwide trip on a boat, of course, in those days. And traveled by plane in those days. Brilliant, brilliant woman. Absolutely brilliant. Could remember anything she ever read. Knew so many things. Very, very wealthy. Multi, multi-millionaire. Very famous, at least in her own circle. Big philanthropist. She headed up religious charities her whole life. Gave millions of dollars to charity. Big circle of friends. Beautiful apartment with original oil paintings and sculptures and books on, on philosophy and everything. And at the end, there was nothing. At the end, she's in a little room with one painting on the wall. One box of clothes. Yeah, but it was very ritualistic. It was, she had nothing. Her mind was still there, but she couldn't speak. She had Parkinson's and she lost her ability. She lost control over her 
the muscles in her neck, which is how she died, because she couldn't eat anymore. She couldn't swallow. She lost the ability to vocalize. So if she wanted water, she would just have to mouth like that. And I could give her a teaspoon of water at a time during the whole course of a day. She would maybe drink a cup of water. What was the use of all of that? What was the point? Her beauty was gone, her intelligence, she couldn't do anything with it because she couldn't even communicate. I took her once a half an hour to try to get me to understand it was my sister's anniversary and I should call her. She had no possessions. When she died, there was nothing for me to do because she had no possessions anymore. They were already all given away. So she had a plaque on the wall that she was a big benefactor and philanthropist. Of what use was it? It was like building a sandcastle. That three weeks I spent in that nursing home, it just all they, they all they had was sandcastles, and they were just gone. What is the point? And it was interesting, you know, my mother had never cultivated an inner spiritual life. So as her physical capacities diminished and diminished over 15 years, she didn't have anything else. She didn't have any place to go. She would, she would take courses over the phone, university courses over the phone. She already had a degree, but she would take university courses over the phone to just do something. But when so she her, had an inner mental life. Yeah, she had an inner mental life, up to a point. That's probably why her mind never did, disintegrated at all. Somehow, by Krishna's grace, in those last weeks, she was able to get an inner spiritual life. Somehow. She finally wanted one, especially the last few days. How did she find an inner spiritual life in the last few days? By Prabhupada's grace. What does that mean? I was playing Prabhupada chanting, I was telling her stories about Krishna. Oh. And at the end, she had an, an inner desire for Krishna. At the very end. Why train your children to fill all of their physical, mental, intellectual energy with sandcastles? Okay, we're in the, we're in the beach world, and you've got to build a sandcastle in the beach world. Okay, fine. But if you don't have Krishna, what is the point? What are you left with at the end? Where will you go? It's just an illusion. It's, it's like if your kids spent all their time mastering a computer game. They become the master of what? Ones and zeros. They're the master of an illusion. Would you think it normal if a child spent all day on a computer game and never interacted with their family? If you spend all of your time and energy... No, no, that, that is very clear. That but it's the same thing, Prabhu. It's the same thing. If you spend all of your time in education and culture and arts and music and languages in the world and you never spend time with Krishna, then you are spending all of your time in a computer game and no time with your real family. That's exactly what you're doing. So, okay, we've got a body, we're in this world, we have to function in this world. Therefore, we have to learn both Sambutim and Asambutim, side by side. Sat and Asat, side by side. Even the Shastra are full of instructions about the Asat. 
this section, Paranjana, is a lot about the illusion and the temporal. You must learn both. If you only learn the spiritual, you won't be able to function. And actually, that, then you become a sahaja, frankly. You have to have both side by side. But don't neglect the thing that's real. Well, if we take time for the thing that's real, we won't have time to perfect the illusion. Why do you have to perfect the illusion anyway? Please. Even if your illusory life is completely awash, even if someone looked at your illusory life and said it is useless, one moment, Bhagavatam says, of pure consciousness, your life is successful. But if your spiritual life is, is awash, shrama evahi kevalam, it's all useless. So if materially your life is a mess, you couldn't hold out a job for more than three months, you had seven marriages, you're in debt, you're just a loser, but you love Krishna, then your life is perfect. Your life is completely perfect. And if you have a mansion in every city and adoring fans and you, you know, discovered the cure for leukemia and you won the Nobel Prize and, and you have not one moment of spiritual consciousness, all you've done is build a sandcastle. So, yes, our children should have both. Everyone should have both. Krishna's advocating both. Just or Chaitanya's advocating both. When he talked to Bhavananda Roy and, the, and his brothers, and his sons rather, his five sons, and he was the, the nice pastime of Gopinath uh, Patanayaka, and he said, listen, I need people. It's interesting, of course, with Ramananda Roy. Ramananda Roy quit his job and came to Jagannath Puri and lived as a full-time devotee, and Maharaj Pratipuri gave Ramananda Roy a full salary give him a full salary and retire. But his brothers were still working for the government. And Lord Chaitanya came and said, I need devotees taking these positions in the world. But don't act sinfully. So we want, we would love to have a devotee president instead of the baboons that are running. Yes, sorry if I'm offending any of you with your political leanings. But we, we, need, we could use a devotee for, in political office. We could use devotees running. I mean, suppose a devotee was running Monsanto and a devotee was running Walmart and a devotee was running the country, and we would love that. Krishna wants that. Krishna wants devotee hospitals and devotee schools and devotee governments. So he wants people who are expert. It's one of his 26 qualities of a devotee is to be expert. Krishna wants people who are expert in their material work to, to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. He wants that. But you can't do that without spiritual consciousness. How are you going to be a devotee head of Walmart if you're not a devotee? How are you going to be a devotee president if you're not a devotee? How are you going to be a devotee doctor if you're not a devotee? But Krishna wants the devotees to be expert in work in the world. Krishna doesn't want us all to become Abhaduta Babajis, that all we're just chanting Hare Krishna and we're useless for anything in the world. He doesn't want that. That wouldn't be a service. It wouldn't be a service. But better to be useless material than to be useless spiritual. Best is to be useful in both ways. That's the best. But most important is the spiritual. The other things are... They're gone. They're gone. When we die, our whole life's going to be reduced to two sentences in the obituary column. 
your whole life. Survived by his wife's funeral ceremonies will be at this home at 2 p.m. He was a doctor at such and such hospital. He's survived by his wife. Funeral ceremonies are at 2 p.m. Donate your flowers to the Hare Krishna temple. And that's it for your whole life. And if you're a really, really big person, we'll give you a paragraph in BTG for your whole life. If you're really, really big, we'll give you a, a feature article of 2,500 words for your whole life. And try, sit down with you know your best friend today and say, I'd like to, you to give me two hours so I can tell you everything I did today. Will they do that? It's hard to get, you know, even your family members to listen for five minutes to what you did today. And those are your family members. Those are the ones who love you and care about you. And do you even remember? The other day I thought, I've got to write something in my diary, and I didn't do it. Now I don't even remember what I wanted to write. I don't even care about what I did last month. I don't even remember. Or what I did when I was five or ten. Or I don't remember. It's not even important to me. Who cares? Our grandchildren's grandchildren won't even know our name. They won't even know our name. We don't know the names of our great-great-grandparents. Do you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? And if you have kids, your grandchildren's grandchildren will not know your name. We'll be forgotten, Prabhu. Everything we've done, all the important, really important things we've done, Huh? That's not my book. But even with books, it's interesting. Vishnu Murthy Prabhu at uh, Bhaktivedanta Library Services, he told me, he said, Ramila, this is the world of the living. He said, for the vast majority of books, as soon as the author dies, nobody buys their book anymore. He said, it's just a few, few, few classic books that people continue to buy. I mean, what he told me, he said, even among the devotees, he says, once a devotee has passed away, he said, people don't buy their books anymore. He said, I can't sell them. So a few people. If you're really, really, really big and really important, then people remember you for 2,000 years as someone they have to take an exam on. Oh, my God. Who's that guy again? What year did he live? Let me write it down. I'm never going to remember. Maybe I'll put a little cheat sheet inside my watch. <laughs> That's if you're really, really, really famous. What is the point? What's the guy famous for? I don't know. I just got to put his name down on the exam. You know? So what is the point? Why, or why do we want to sacrifice the real and the eternal for that? Yeah, you got to work in the world. Okay, I got to work in the world. Here I am. Hare Krishna. Best use of a bad bargain. Here I am. Let me try to do some good while I'm here. Let me try to spiritualize my illusory consciousness. Let me try to do, you know, let me keep busy doing some service for Krishna until I can join the real world. And Krishna will be very pleased with that. And let me train my children how to do it. All right? I should stop now. It is very, very late. Shri Prabhupada Ki. Jai.